you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We're going to start there tonight. Revelation chapter 3, and then we'll come back to 2 Kings 22. We are so much like Judah. So much like Judah, it's, it's stunning. We are like Judah at the end of Josiah's reign. Josiah was eight years old, you may recall, when he became the 16th king of the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom. 16 years old when he began to seek the God of his father David. And by the time he turned 18, we see a flame of revival ignite in his heart and spread like wildfire across the kingdom of Judah and even beyond that. Now Sunday morning, we began talking about this path of revival. How we see in the life and in the kingdom and in the rule of Josiah, how revival begins by receiving a right relationship with the Lord. Walking with him as as Josiah chose to do that as a 16 year old to follow in the footsteps of his father David receiving that right relationship. We see how it involves repairing damages to the house of the Lord. We made that, that allusion to the church, the house of God and how we have a responsibility within this fellowship and within the broader church fellowship to be people who are about making repairs because you know we break down from time to time. The temple didn't just stand unscathed, perfect over the years. It needed to be rejuvenated, repaired, fixed, restored. And so we're called to that, to receive that right relationship with the Lord, to repair the damages of the house of the Lord. We saw how revival always must include a rediscovery of the word of the Lord. And I said, and I hope I said it clearly enough on Sunday, if the word is not the centerpiece, if it is not being preached clearly and soundly, then it is not revival, not revival by the Lord anyway. Unless the word is there. We also saw how revival brings about a return to a covenant relationship with the Lord. Remember that Josiah reinstituted Passover in a way that it had not been celebrated since the judges. In fact, biblically speaking, we only saw Passover from the judges all the way back, in fact, to Joshua. That was the last time that we saw Passover celebrated, when Joshua and the people celebrated it in around Joshua chapter 5. We don't see it again until the kingdom of Hezekiah, three generations prior to Josiah. And even then, it was not of the caliber and magnitude where Josiah invited all of Judah. And he went further than that, as we'll see tonight. He invited the people beyond the outskirts of Judah. Anyone who would call themselves a son of Israel to come and have Passover and share that great feast. And we talked about the fact that in the, the reinstitution of the covenant of Passover, we in a similar way are revived as we come to Christ, our Passover. Week in and week out, we come to the table. We recognize that Jesus walked the path of blood. The blood covenant, remember that? That Abraham cut the pieces of the different animals and laid each piece and created that pathway of blood and God alone walked through it in the same way that Jesus walked the path of blood to Calvary. And so we receive a right relationship with the Lord. We repair the damage of the house of the Lord. Rediscover the word of the Lord. Return to a covenant relationship with the Lord. I'm going to add a few more to this list tonight, which is why I'm repeating it for you now. But we must recognize that 
our revival by his death and his resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith. The cross is right at the middle of Christian faith. To meander and wander away from the cross is to miss the very grounding of our salvation itself. Now we've seen all these things at the center of revival, not only with Josiah, but in the last several centuries of the church as well. And I want you to consider this tonight as we read, look at Judah, not just as a, as a nation in history, but as a picture of the nation in which we live today. Because I think there are some parallels there. Even as we're just worshiping tonight, I was going over my mind, there are some striking similarities between that nation of Judah, revived under Josiah, having gone through a spiritual revival, but then how quickly it falls away. And what danger and threat the people of Judah will face. J. Vernon McGee in, in his excellent commentary, and if, if you don't have the, the commentary series by J. Vernon McGee, I suggest you get it. Uh, he does such an excellent job of just, in very common language, portraying and explaining the truths of Scripture. And he wrote the following. He said, A flood tide came in the 1700s, which was led by the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. Wycliffe and John Knox in the 15 and 1600s were Reformers before the Reformation. In the 1600s came another spiritual awakening known as the Puritan movement. Again in the 1700s, a time of darkness and deism, came another great spiritual awakening led by Wesley and Whitfield. In the 1800s, there was a mighty turning to God in Oxford and the missionary movement resulted. He writes, toward the end of that century, we were led in great revivals by Moody and Finney. In the 20th century... And McGee writes, hear me now very carefully. There was no world-sweeping, earth-shaking revival. He writes, there have been a few local revivals, but look around you today. When we had a great depression in this country, we did not turn to God as a nation. When we had uh, a second world war, we were plunged into it. We saw the spilling of American blood unequaled since our own civil war. That experience apparently did not teach us a thing. There was no revival. Since then, we've had the Korean War and the Vietnam Wars. Neither of these has brought our nation back to God. We could add to that 9-11, the Iraq War, the global war on terror, and many so-called natural disasters recently, more than I've seen in my lifetime, Katrina among others. And the question that floats out there for me is, what does it take to wake up a country to revival? What does it take to return our hearts and our minds, not individually, because I know so many of you, and I know where your faith is, but what does it take to, t- to shake a country back to revival? Have any of these recent crises turned our nation's heart back to God? There was about a 24-hour period after 9-11, maybe 48 hours, that sense of nationalism, everybody was buying flags, that, that sense of, of, of unity and drawing back together, but it never got there. It never got there. And our nation did not seek the Lord. Now you Bible students know that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters written to seven churches. Seven letters which are both literally historic and profoundly prophetic. Now I can show you a lot more to, to back this up and it's in the Revelation series you can listen to it but, but these seven letters represent 
Not only seven churches in history that were there that did receive these letters, but they also represent seven very obvious and successive stages of the church that can be overlaid almost like a transparency across the last 2,000 years. And it's quite breathtaking to go through those. Remember the old transparencies on overhead projectors? <laughs> Which we don't even use those anymore. I mean, how fast we're moving away from things that uh, we use for years. But you take a transparency and you could take the real letter of the actual church 2,000 years ago and lay it across history and you could go, that fits like a glove to the church in this period or in this period or in this period. That being the case, I have a, a fascination with these letters, especially the last few letters, because they should, if that's so, they should describe the church of today. We should be able to look at those and say, yes, we see that, that's us, that's what's going on. Again, J. Vernon McGee said, the panoramic history of the church is given in these seven letters, from Pentecost to the Parousia, from the upper room to the upper air. I like that. And so I want to look at two churches before we go back to Judah. Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 verses 7 through 13 and Laodicea verses 14 through 22. These two churches, we should see traces of these in the world in which we live. Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. This will be overlaid as the mission church, that great missionary explosion of the 1800s that we saw in the world. Where churches finally stopped focusing in and said, let's get out. We've reformed. We have returned. We have a fire in us. Let's take it to the nations of the world. And so we see overlaid in that period of time, the church of brotherly love, it exploded evangelically at that time. And then Laodicea. Laodicea, which literally means the people's rights. That's the name of the city in the Greek, the people's rights. And Laodicea is the people's church. It's the lukewarm church, desperately in need of revival. But it's instead settling for doctrinal indifference and theological liberalism and worse, abject spiritual apostasy. Listen to Jesus' description of these two churches. Verse 7 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write... He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut. Because you have little power. Some of your translations say a little power. It's literally, you have little power. And have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come, upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Something that has not yet happened. A testing of the whole entire earth. I am coming quickly. The word quickly there, I remind you, is suddenly. In other words, when Jesus comes, it will be sudden. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a church with little power in and of himself, but they kept the word. Philadelphia, again, is not unlike Judah in the days of Josiah. Judah was surrounded by the great nations of Assyria 
to the north, and Egypt down to the south and the west, from Babylon to the east that was beginning to rise. And Judah had little power. The little nation of Judah. But under Josiah, they rediscovered the word more than any generation literally since Moses led the people to the outskirts of the promised land. They were revived, they were alive, they were powerful, they were protected, even though they were small, under the kingdom and the reign of Josiah. Many people in the church today think we have great power. I keep hearing that. It's kind of a kind of a movement. Not unlike my wife standing up in the middle of my teaching and walking out. Kind of that kind of a kidding. There, there are people thinking now and speaking and saying, and I'm hearing it all the time, that we are going to usher in the kingdom. That we, the church, are getting more powerful. That we are going to bring the kingdom powerfully and miraculously and wonderfully across the whole world. And once we conquer the world in the name of Jesus, we're going to hand it to them as if on a silver platter and say, look at what we've done. Here you go, Jesus. We've done all the work. Come on in and kick back. And this is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what the Word tells us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The end follows the end of true faithfulness. The apostasy, that is a church-wide falling away from the truth. That's what the Word says to expect. Which is why Jesus is so clear to say, hang on, hold to my word, don't deny my name, hold fast. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, he says, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So two things have to happen before Jesus comes to reign in his kingdom. The church will fall, at least as is known, and Antichrist will be revealed. Now, I, I, some of you may be saying, looking around, well, our church? Are we going to fall? No. Because the true church, the true believers, will be caught up, will be protected, will be taken out. Oh, you're talking about the rapture. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I absolutely believe in it. As much today as the first time I discovered it, came across it, began to understand what the scriptures say about it. That the true people of faith who have little power but who cling to his name and his word we will be caught up and at that point there will be a vacuum in traditional organized religious church and that will apostatize and that church will fall we will not be the great givers of the kingdom to Jesus he alone will bring the kingdom when he comes he alone has the power to do so We'll look at verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3. We skip on down and he's talking now to Laodicea, the people's rights. We call it the people's church. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, but neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I shall to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. 
Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him. And he with me. And it's one of the, the great dichotomies of Scripture. It's a fascinating verse that we use for evangelism, but Jesus spoke it to the church. We say that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so if you're not a believer, come on in. Or open the door and I'll come in to you. He's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to the church. That has apparently closed the door on him. And he's outside saying, Are, are you going to let me in? Is this going to be about me or is it going to be your thing? The people's church. Or will it be the church of Jesus Christ? He says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne also as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches Laodicea Oscar Milktoast would be the pastor of that church (laughs) so what do we do when we hear this we look at Philadelphia this great mission church that I believe still exists I believe that's still a description of some aspect of the church today. The church that is outreaching. The church that is bringing Jesus into the world. The church that is not all about itself. All tunnel vision and focused in. And we have Laodicea, which is the church that really thinks they've got it all together. The church that believes in themselves. What do we do with all this? Do we, do we just give in and hole up and wait for Jesus to fix things? Absolutely not. Because Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.3 that we have been born again to a living hope. We read that verse on Sunday. I wanted to do it again tonight. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that living hope, gang, is grounded in two very simple things. Keeping the Word of God and being kept by what the Spirit says to the churches. Keep the Word of God. You do not compromise on the Word. And you remain kept by the Spirit. And we will be taken home when the time comes. That's why Judah, under Josiah, saw a revival in their generation. They kept the Word. And they were kept by the Spirit. They were caught up in a great movement of God in the discovery of His Word. Now go back to 2 Kings 22.14 and we'll pick up the story there. With all these things in mind and considering where we are, our place in history, a fascinating place to live, but difficult times nonetheless. 2 Kings 22. You may recall after rediscovering the copy of Torah Law and having it read in His presence that Josiah rent his clothes. It wasn't for cash. He tore them. And then he sent his men to Huldah the prophetess, beginning in verse 15 of 2 Kings 22. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Which, by the way, is interesting. You normally wouldn't say that to a king. You'd say, Tell the king that the Lord says this. But instead she says, Tell the man who sent me to you. It was... It was a humbling statement, but it was also a statement of recognition that the Lord, through hold of the prophetess, is recognizing Josiah is just a man. And he is making a point, I believe, here. Josiah, you're just a man. The power is going to be from me. Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me. And they have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath burns against this place. It shall not be quenched. 
But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse and you, you have torn your clothes and wept before me I truly have heard you declares the Lord therefore behold I will gather you to your fathers and watch this you will be gathered to your grave in peace make a mental note of that God promises that Josiah's death will be one of peace and your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So, during Josiah's lifetime, the revival in Judah will remain. It doesn't wane. It doesn't fall back. They don't go back to idolatry. As long as Josiah is alive, living there in Judah, the revival continues. But after his death, almost instantaneously things begin falling apart and the wrath of God would fall on Judah by the instrument of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon why in spite of this revival does judgment still come it's interesting to me that the Lord says before he says because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself you're going to have a good life and you're going to go to your grave in peace before he speaks words of comfort to Josiah he says I am going to do these things to Judah Judah is going to be wiped out. I am going to send them into captivity. This is going to happen. Why? The revival's going on. The people are being turned back to the Lord. Why would he say this? A couple of reasons to consider. Number one, the rebellion of the people was already seated. You know the biblical principle, Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Hosea chapter 8 verse 7. Hosea was prophesying around this time. He said, For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. You see, Judah and Israel before her Judah had walked for years and years in idolatry and carnality and sin and their children had grown up with that and that's a tragedy when parents will teach young children all the way up all the things that are contrary to the Lord and I've had more conversations with parents who have come to the Lord people who have come to the Lord later in life only then to look back at their children and realize something has been seeded that they don't want anymore and it is heartbreaking to look at that and to desire. And I see parents just praying and praying and praying that their kids will, will find the Lord and will turn around. That those seeds of corruption and sin that were planted would die and revival could happen. And that's what's going on here in Judah. The rebellion was already there. There were already children raised in idolatry. And though during Josiah's lifetime things were good and returned to the Lord, there was still that seed planted in their hearts. The good news is that though rebellion can be seeded, producing a harvest of judgment, the opposite is true as well. Proverbs 11.18 says, The wicked earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness gets a true reward. Hosea chapter 10 verse 12, Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. 
So, even though the people are following along in Josiah's revival, there was something germinating beneath the surface in their hearts. Which indicates the second reason that judgment is still going to come to Judah. Not only the rebellion of the people was already seated, but the revival of the people was apparently shallow. And we see the surface the destruction of all the idols and the coming back for the great covenant of Passover and, and the time spent before the Lord but it was surface the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 10 Jeremiah came along during the reign of King Josiah and Jeremiah wrote these words of the Lord Judah did not return to me with all her heart but rather in deception Judah didn't truly turn back to the Lord Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 2 says you are near to their lips but far from their mind I I don't know what goes on in your mind when we're worshiping or when we're studying the word Um, sometimes I wonder I'm I'm a terrible mind reader so I really have no idea you could be sitting there making a grocery list and I would think you are totally engrossed in the teaching you know but the reality is sprinkled across any church fellowship there are people who are praising God with their lips but their minds are somewhere else and one of the things that I ask the Lord to do in coming down here and in times of worship is that He will just capture my thoughts. He will captivate my mind. That He will hold my thoughts captive for Christ Jesus. So that it's not just lip service like the revival of the people of Judah. It was a shallow revival. How do we know if a revival really has the Lord in it? I'll tell you how. It will be sweeping and it will take root. You can test the worth of any revival ten years later. How's it going now? What has it produced ten years later, twenty years later? That's where you see if revival truly was of the Lord. Judah's revival only lasted the lifetime of Josiah. But in chapter 23, we see this revival going to full swing. Verse 1, then the king... The king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he, that is the king, Josiah, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. Again, the reason the word is such a centerpiece is because without it, the people don't know what to do. The same is true with us. If we don't have the word guiding us, we really don't know what we're doing. We don't don't even realize when we get off track and on into things that are truly none of our business or not to be our focus unless we've got the word. And so Josiah covenants with the people to the Lord that they will keep and proclaim his word. In other words, if it's not taught, it will be forgotten. And I don't mean just once, but again and again and again. We have to return to these truths. There are certain verses, and you, you'll hear them. You see them cropping up. Certain verses that you go, oh yeah, man, we saw that last week. Oh, wait a minute, we saw that the week before. Well, we've seen that every week for about 12 in a row now. You know? There are certain theological concepts, certain biblical ideas that we cross over again and again and again. Why is that? Because if it's not taught, it will be forgot. And those seem to emerge in Scripture as we study through. And the Lord points these things out to us. How many of you, just in the days and hours between Sunday and Wednesday, already forgot what we studied? 
Jesus. How many of you are, and it's funny, well, I'm not going to say anything about Cheryl because that's, that's not nice. And, and I'll get kicked or something, even though she's not supposed to misuse Taekwondo. But honestly, how often do you shut the Bible, walk out of here, and, and ten minutes later you're going, what was that that we, what did we cover? I mean, that, that's just, the we are ADD, every single one of us. I think that is the state of the world today. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18, that's why the Lord said, you shall impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. Teach them to your sons. Talking of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. The word, the word, the word, the word. Teach it constantly. Speak it. Share it. Be in it. Let it be the conversation of your household, of your family, of your life. Because if it's not taught, it will soon be for God. 1 Timothy 4.11 Paul said to Timothy, prescribe and teach these things. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So important was it that those two letters that Paul wrote to young Pastor Tim were full of that exhortation. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word. And that's what Josiah does. He is the king of Torah and revival fuels reform throughout Judah as Josiah goes about reforming the entire land. It doesn't just stick to his household or Jerusalem. But Josiah begins to spread out two or three more roots of revival. We're going to add to the list that we began building on Sunday. Here's, here's number five. We, we have four on Sunday. Number five would be remove the availability of sin. If revival is happening in your life, if you, desire, if you desire to be revived as a son, as a daughter of the king, then remove the availability of sin. Don't just ignore sin. Don't just pretend it's not there. You remove from your life those areas that just make it easy. Even if you think you're strong enough to say no, you remove its availability. Look at verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest... And the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal. Unbelievable. These things were in the temple. And for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kedrones and carried their ashes up to Bethel. That is up to the house of God. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah, and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the hosts of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord, outside Jerusalem, to the brook Kedron. I've shared with you before, the Asherah, do you know what the goddess Asherah, the many-breasted goddess of fertility, was placed in the house of the Lord. I mean, talk about defilement. Unbelievable. Even the, that, that picture of, of that idolatrous woman being brought out. It, it's shocking that it was there in the first place. Well, Josiah said, we're not going to have any of these things available. We're not even going to have them approachable. We're not going to tuck them away and pretend they're not there. We are destroying every single one. He had it brought out of the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kedron, verse 6. Burned it at the brook Kedron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes which were in the house of the Lord. 
where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah, the male cult prostitutes. The word there in the Hebrew is literally the sodomites. So these were male temple prostitutes, homosexuals. And at this time, Josiah said, there will not be homosexuality in my kingdom. We will not have it. We would not tolerate it. He would be called bigoted and homophobic and all the rest today. But this great king said, no, it was sin before, it is sin now, and by the way, it's still sin, according to scripture. And so he removed all of that. Verse 8, then he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense from Gabah to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. In other words, Josiah terminated their contracts as priests. These are Levitical priests who had traded their Levitical priestly training in for sacrificing the high places. But Josiah, in mercy and kindness, said, You no longer have a right to serve in the temple. However, we will still give you the unleavened bread from the temple that was the priest's portion. So there was some mercy in this as well. And then verse 10, He also defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire for Molech. And there, just to the south of Jerusalem today, is the Hinnom Valley which is also pronounced in the Greek Gehenom and it's the word Jesus used Gehenna speaking specifically of hell that valley of Tophet Tophet is a word that means drumming and we've talked about this but that was where the god Molech was set up and Tophet this valley of Tophet the drums would beat and they would bring the infants down to this god Molech whose arms were heated up to intense heat and they would sacrifice the infants on the arms and in the belly, which was a great furnace. And Josiah said, no more. This is history. We will not have this, not in my kingdom. He did away, verse 11, with the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Malek, the official, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. What's going on here is there were horses and chariots that were stabled there that were used for parades in Jerusalem to the God of the sun. To worship the sun as a God in and of itself. Special chariots that were designed probably down in Egypt and horses given for that purpose and he did away with all of those as well. Verse 12 says, The altars which were on the roof and the upper chamber of Ahaz which the kings of Judah had made and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the Lord the king broke down. And he smashed them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. The brook, brook Kidron, Kidron Valley today is a valley actually that's just to the east of the Temple Mount that goes down and then as you go up the other side you are on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane is there. That's the valley that Jesus crossed over when he went to Gethsemane on that night. The brook Kidron was known for carrying the waste and the filth and the garbage of Jerusalem. That's where they dumped it. And so that's why he's grinding these things to death and he's throwing it all there into the Kidron Valley because as far as Josiah is concerned, it's absolute garbage. Verse 13. The high places which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon the king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the 
Sidonians, and for Chamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the sons of Ammon, the king defiled. Did you notice who built those gods? Look again at verse 13. Who was the king that built those gods? Solomon. These gods, these idols, had been there since the days of Solomon, and he's the one who set them up. Finally, finally, praise God, we can say in our study through kings, we come to a king who gets rid of all of it. There is nothing left. Nothing hidden, nothing forgotten. Every single idol, every high place, done away with completely. He is restoring the land to God the Father in a powerful way. He broke in pieces, verse 14, the sacred pillars, cut down the asherim, and filled their places with human bones. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place, now watch this, which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. And he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Asher. Gang, verse 15, is outside of the boundaries of Judah. This revival is breaking out beyond the nation of Judah and into what was once the nation of Israel that is no longer. Josiah was not content even to stop with his own house, with his own city, Jerusalem, with his own nation of Judah. He kept going. And he went and broke down even the idols and high places that Jeroboam had set up so many generations before. Verse 16 tells us, Now when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain. And he sent and he took bones from the graves and burned them on the altar and defiled it according to the word of the Lord which the man of God proclaimed who proclaimed these things. What man of God? What man of God are we talking about here? This is a reference back to 1 Kings chapter 13 to a man of God, a prophet, 300 years earlier who named Josiah in a prophecy that he brought. Let me read this to you. 1 Kings 13 verse 1. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. He cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. So when we get to verse 16 here, we are reminded this prophecy was given 300 years earlier, and now it's fulfilled. Filled to the letter. That's amazing. I mean, that not that kind of stunning to you? It wasn't just some guy's going to come along and burn down this altar and, well, maybe that happened or maybe it didn't. And maybe it was the prophecy, maybe it wasn't. He names Josiah. Josiah's going to do it. And Josiah did it. We'll see this again when Isaiah prophesies. When he says a man named Cyrus is going to send you back to rebuild the temple. And Cyrus, the Persian, who is then king over the, the remains of Babylon when Medo-Persia takes over, and I don't mean to lose you in the history here, but, but Cyrus will do that exact thing 150 years after Isaiah says it's going to happen. Why do you believe in the Bible, Rick? <laughs> well, there's no other book that proclaims and answers in the same book that historically validates itself, prophetically validates itself, time and time again. Now, if you've studied through First and Second Kings with us, you may recall that this man of God who proclaimed Josiah would do this 300 years earlier, completed his task. But after completing his, his task, he was deceived by a wily old prophet 
And he strayed from the word of the Lord and he ended up going back the way he had come, which he wasn't supposed to do, and he ended up killed on the road by a lion. The lion didn't eat him, he just killed him and stood there. And that story is an interesting one because that old codger, the same one who deceived the man of God, went and got the body of the man of God, put it on his donkey and brought it back to his own grave where he buried him there. And the man, that old prophet, declared to his sons that he wanted to be buried when he died with the man of God. Well, that's weird. Is he just feeling guilty? It's not a matter of guilt. The man of God wanted, who was dead, the old prophet wanted to be buried with the man of God so that his bones would be ultimately protected. It brings us back to Josiah in verse 17. Josiah said, What is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, Oh, well, let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. And so they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet, that old codger, who came from Samaria. So he was wise. This, this guy knew what he was doing. He may have been a deceiver, but he knew one thing to be true. That God was good on his word. That he would keep his word to the letter. And knowing the prophecy and knowing what the man of God brought, he knew if his bones were buried with the man of God, then his bones would not be burned up and fried and, and dusted on the altar like these other guys were. That's why the story is recounted in the book that we too would know the Lord keeps his word with absolute precision. I love the word for that reason and for many others. Interesting, Numbers chapter 23, verse 1. Another prophet says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor is he a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? You know who said that? It's an old prophet named Balaam. Balaam, as he prophesied to King Balak, and Balaam was a surly dude. He was not really a, a prophet of the Lord. He was just a prophet, a seer, who had an ability, a spiritual gift. And God spoke through him and used him anyway. Isaiah chapter 46, 11, Isaiah quotes the Lord saying, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. And over and over throughout the scripture, we get that promise. I say it, I will do it. Count on it. Verse 19. Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done to Bethel. All the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. It's a massive Sweeping reforms. Josiah is intent on removing the vestiges of sin, that, that nothing would be left. Nothing for the people to return to. Nothing that they could find and, and resurrect and begin to follow. He wiped out everything, as we said, even beyond the borders of Judah, into the entire country that God had given Israel. Do you get what Josiah is really doing here? He is. The captivity of Judah had been proclaimed. The end is before them. The apostasy will come, and Josiah knows that, but he's still fighting it. And I think that's interesting in this king. I pointed this out on Sunday. Hezekiah heard the same word from the Lord. You're going to die in peace, but it's not going to be good for your offspring. He goes, okay, as long as I die in peace. Josiah hears 
that there is going to be a great wrath and a judgment on Judah. And rather than sit back and just enjoy his waning days, Josiah fights it. Josiah says, you know what, as long as I'm here, I am not going to make it easy for people to sin. I am not going to make it easy for people to rebel. I will remove even the opportunity to sin. And gang, that's part of our call. It's part of what the Lord has put on His church. That we don't stop until He says stop. We don't sit back and go, oh well, it's just going to be this way. Oh well, it's just the direction our country is headed. No, we don't. We stand up and we speak the words of truth. Did you see the survey that was going around on MSNBC this, this last week? The survey asking, do you think that the, the words, in God we trust, I believe it should be taken off, the, off our currency. Okay, did you hear that? There's an atheist, and once again, we've seen this come up before, there's an atheist suing the government to have In God We Trust removed from our currency. And so MSNBC put it on their website and said, vote. Should we have it removed, or should we not? At the last time I checked, when I voted 27 times, um, (laughs) no, I just voted once, but when I looked, it was 71% of our country saying, no, that should remain. That's a voice. And that's part of what we are called as the church to do is be a voice, to stand up. In fact, you could put it this way, gang, we are to restrain the movement of the enemy. That's number six in our list of of revival. Restrain the movement of the enemy. Look at verse 21. The king commanded, we, we read this Sunday, all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. And such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed all the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations. Teraphim were the little household gods. So he went door to door. Empty them out. I don't want even the slightest image left in a house. And the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Again, this is critical. He is restraining the movement of the enemy. Because of his faithfulness, because they clung to the word and proclaimed the word, and revival spread throughout the land, God stemmed the tide of evil at least through that generation. Josiah could have kicked back. He didn't. He knew the end was coming and he knew he was going to be saved. Don't we? We know the end is coming. We know the apostasy is coming. We know the Antichrist is coming. We can read scripture and we know there's a ton of bad stuff right around the corner for this world. That doesn't mean that we sit back and go, well, we're not going to be here. Bummer for them. We fight it. And for every last generation that the church is in this world, we are called to be an instrument of restraint against the movement of the enemy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul is talking about Antichrist and his rise to evil. And he says, you know what restrains him now? So that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This is one of these things we've talked about before. We've got to teach it and teach it and teach it so we don't forget it. Who is the one that restrains? This restraining influence Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians, the obvious answer is the Holy Spirit. 
But the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit at work and alive in the world today restrains and stems the tide of evil. I know things are bad, but can you imagine a world without the presence of the Spirit of Christ? A world devoid of the Holy Spirit altogether. Do you think things are wicked and evil now? It's not even close. At least now there is a restraint. But listen to this. The book of Acts references the work of the Holy Spirit in the church over 60 times. The book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit working in the church. Well, that's a longer title, but I like it. John 14, 16. Jesus said, I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And when we say, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to us this evening? I wonder sometimes the Lord doesn't say, I'm there. I'm here. Do you forget that I abide with you and I am in you? Jesus says where two or three are gathered together, I am there. And even more intimately than that, when one person, one person of faith is praying to the Lord, the Spirit is interceding with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit is here. He is with the, the church, the body. But what happens to the Holy Spirit when the church is caught up? He goes too. When the church leaves the world, is taken out, is raptured, the Spirit of God leaves as well. I'll give you just one little reason I believe that. In the church's talk to, the seven letters we referenced earlier in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, every single letter ends with this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. At the end of chapter 3, the church is not mentioned again until chapter 19, when we see the church as a bride. So from chapter 3 to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, the church is absent completely. The Holy Spirit is absent as well. Even to the point that in Revelation 13 verse 9, the Bible writes, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Period. Not if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, because the church isn't there and the Spirit's not there. So it's just if anyone has an ear, let him hear. The Lord is still trying to save people. The Spirit has left the building. When the church goes, the Holy Spirit goes. Josiah's reforms, gang, restrained the enemy and the tide of evil from flowing in Judah during his lifetime. You can almost imagine around the borders of Judah just righteousness holding back evil. After Josiah's death, that would all change. The people will go downhill fast. And in the same way, the church, which is used by the Lord and the power of the Spirit to restrain evil, will restrain evil until we are gone and all hell breaks loose. So again, why even try when you know the apostasy is coming? Because we have a role to play. Because we are called, not in our strength, not in our power, not in our goodness and righteousness. Well, it's not because Pastor Rick is such a right-on guy that evil is held back. It's because I have the Spirit dwelling within me. Because the Holy Spirit is in your life. You can change a workplace because you are evidencing the Holy Spirit in your life. Evil and wickedness and sin can be restrained in your family, among your friends. You ever see what happens when when a Christian is standing in a group of people and someone starts to tell an off-color joke and the Christian just kind of stands there and doesn't smile? How many more jokes like that do you hear? It just goes away. Restrain. 
restrain the movement of evil. That is the role we're called to. Verse 25, Before him, that is Josiah, there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might. Deuteronomy 6.4, that is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. This is exactly what Josiah does. According to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Verse 26, However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocation with, with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight, as I have removed Israel. I will cast off Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I have said, My name shall be there. Verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? Number seven in our list. This is the last one for tonight. Remember the role of the church in revival. Remember the role of the church in revival. This is absolutely critical. Let me explain it to you. In First and Second Chronicles, the, the life and death of Josiah is recounted in much greater depth. Here the writer of the Kings covers his tragically premature death in the next couple of verses, but it's quick and it's over with, and we learn more from First and Second Chronicles. Let me read what the writer of Kings says. In his days, verse 29, Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And by the way, they were making an alliance up there. That's why he was going up. He wasn't going to fight the king of Assyria. He was going to make an alliance with him against the rising tide of Babylon. So he's headed up there. He's kind of bypassing Israel. He's heading north up to Assyria. And King Josiah went out to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. His servants drove his body in a chariot from the ghetto and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in the place of his fathers. Two, two verses. King's going up. Josiah goes out to meet him. Kills him. And that's it for Josiah. And I wonder, how does this jive with God's promise that Josiah was going to die in peace? He's killed by this other king. Turning your Bibles over to Second Chronicles real quickly here. Second Chronicles chapter 35. Now we're going to study this when we come back to it after we do Matthew, but it's going to be a little while, so let's look at it right now. Second Chronicles chapter 35 and verse 20 gives us the full picture of Josiah's death. It says, After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order... Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. He didn't just go out to meet him. Hi, king. Hi, king. How's it going? Good. He went out to engage him in battle. Josiah went to fight. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What are we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but I'm against the house with which I am at war. Then God has ordered me to hurry. Interesting. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Here's this pagan king, you know, presuming to tell King Josiah that God told him to leave him alone. I have other business. However, Josiah would not turn away from him but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Nor did he listen to the words of Necho, watch this, from the mouth of God. 
it was God speaking through this pagan king. It was God warning Josiah through Nico. And he says he came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. Verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of, out of the chariot and carried him to the second chariot which he had and brought him to Jerusalem where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. We're told that all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Verse 25, this is unlike any of the kings before him. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the lamentations. The rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion is written in the law of the Lord. And his acts, first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and of Judah. For all of his greatness, King, and his faithfulness and his love of the Lord, Josiah died for one reason. He meddled in something that was not his business. It's as simple as that. It was not Josiah's call to go fight the king of of Egypt. It was not his business. This had nothing to do with him, but he meddled. That's why I say remember the role of the church in revival. We have a very definite role to play. As children of the king, we have a call on our lives. What is that role? Because I I fear this is exactly what we do. Not only on a personal level do we sometimes meddle with other people, but on a corporate level as a church. Jesus says, here's what you're to do. Matthew 28, 18. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There it is. That is the task that we are called to. Like Josiah, who was called to bring revival to the people, so we are called to bring the reviving truth of Jesus Christ. To see dead lives turned into live lives, I guess. We are called to see people revive. That's the calling of the church. We've got to be careful not to meddle in things that are not ours to meddle with in the first place. Example, we're not in the entertainment business. That's not what the church is here for. We are not in the political business. Though I know that there are good Christians in politics, and we need good Christians in politics, but it's not the role of the church to play politics. It is the role of the church to bring the saving name of Jesus to the world. We are not in the commercial business. That is to make money or to develop a vast empire. We are in the revival business, seeing dead people revived to new life. Josiah left the business of revival for military exploits, and he lost his life because he meddled. He, he went to a place that was not his to go. Now there is an outpouring of national sorrow unparalleled at his death. Even a century later, by the way, and this is just an interesting thing to, to note, that Zechariah the prophet, a hundred years after this, would refer to Josiah's death in a remarkable prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. Listen to this. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. He writes, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadirman in the plain of Megiddo. 
If you ever wondered what that meant, the morning of Hadadraman in the plain of Megiddo, what, what does that mean? Hadadraman was most likely a village there. Probably Megiddo today. Megiddo is one of the stops, by the way, on our Israel tour, so if you'd like to sign up and go to Israel, I encourage you to do so. But we stop and we see the remains of the city of Megiddo. That is most likely the remains of Hadadraman. Why would there be weeping and mourning there? Because Josiah was killed on the outskirts of that city, there in the valley of Megiddo. Megiddo, Megiddo, where Armageddon will happen. So in that place where he was killed, Zechariah pulls this around. And he connects the death of Josiah in that valley with the coming of Christ to that same valley at Armageddon. He compares the intense mourning of a parent over the loss of a child and the sorrow of a people over the loss of their beloved king. He compares those emotions to the realization of the Jewish people that Jesus Christ, Yeshua, is truly their Mashiach, their Messiah, their Savior. Now one final note. I said to pay attention as we went by a certain verse back in chapter 22 where the Lord said in verse 20 of chapter 22 Behold, I will gather you, Josiah, to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. But he was shot. He was shot trying to make war. And God promised he was going to be gathered to his grave in peace. So how do we work that out? Two things. First off, Josiah died in the peace of Jerusalem. He didn't die in the plain of Megiddo. He was shot in the plain of Megiddo. He was ridden by chariot back to Yerushalayim, the city of peace. So in essence, Josiah did die in peace. The city of peace. His home city of Jerusalem. But Josiah also died in a peace that passes understanding. He died in the peace of Yahweh, the peace of Jehovah. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Psalm 119, 165, as if describing King Josiah himself, says, those who love your law have great peace. Was there ever a king before him or after who loved the law like Josiah? The Bible says, no, there wasn't. He absolutely loved the Word of God, and so he did die in Jerusalem in peace. Verse 31 of chapter 23, as we finish up, it just says, Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. That's not the prophet Jeremiah, it's just another Jeremiah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Pharaoh Necho imprisoned him at Riblah in the land of Hamat that he might not reign in Jerusalem and he imposed on the land a fine of 100 talents of silver that's 33 and a quarter tons and a talent of gold that'd be 75 pounds that had to be paid and I believe this was on a monthly basis this tribute had to be paid out to the king of Egypt Pharaoh Necho then made Eliakim the son of Josiah king so this is the second son of Josiah made him king in the place of Josiah his father but changed his name to Jehoiakim and so it says uh, he took Jehoahaz away and brought him to Egypt and he died there so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh but he taxed the land in order to give the money at the command of Pharaoh he exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land each according to his valuation 
and gave it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. So now we have two sons of Josiah. The first one reigned three months, didn't even warm the throne. And Jehoiakim reigns 11 years and his mother's name was... Thank you for laughing at that, by the way, because that was, I thought was kind of funny. His mother's name was Zabita, and the daughter, who was the daughter of Pedaiah of Rumah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now here's the thing to know. The geopolitical landscape is on the, the verge of a huge, a massive upset. There outside the country of little Judah that was doing so well and was so revived for a time, Josiah dies and they begin to crumble. And on the outskirts we see this mighty Assyria to the north, but Assyria is falling apart. We see mighty Egypt down to the south, but Egypt is desperately aligning itself with Assyria to maintain some kind of power. And they're both doing it against a new world order that is rising in the east, and that is Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Up till this point, I say it for this reason, gang, up to this point, the people of Judah could not imagine a landscape like happened almost overnight. When Josiah was king, they were strong and protected. There was Assyria, there was Egypt, and, they, you know, and they're all fighting each other. So, hey, we're good, we're, cl- we're cool, we're safe here. And everything changed. In, in an instant, in the middle of all this upheaval happening in the nations, geopolitically, was little Judah. And the false prophets inside Judah were saying again and again, the temple's here. We've got the temple. We can't fall. We can't fall. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the city of God's name. We can't fall. The prophets over and over, false ones, kept saying this. Jeremiah said something different in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The reality, gang, is we are not to trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the church, the church, the church. America, we're this Christian nation. The church is here. We've got our church buildings and our steeples and our landscape and our programs. And all the things that we're doing, the church is here. America can't fall. That's what Judah thought. That's what Judah assumed. Over 2,000 years, the the Spirit has empowered the church to do great things. Revivals, restoration, removal of sin, even the restraint of evil. The church has been used by the power of God to do these things. But Philadelphia was only strong when they kept the word and were kept by the Spirit. That's the reason for their strength, and it's very clear about that. Laodicea thinks that she's strong. But she is not. Laodicea is lukewarm, milk toast mess. What's the lesson for us? The lesson is simply this. Like Judah before us, we are not going to usher in the kingdom. We don't have that power. The power is in the Spirit of God. Who is restraining evil until the man of lawlessness should be revealed. Until the apostasy happens. When I believe and the Bible is clear about this, we are taken out. We go home. The Spirit goes too. And the world will fall apart. I don't want to leave you on that depressing note, so let me just say this. Praise God, we have a few moments left to speak the name of Jesus. Let's do that. Father, we pray to you now and ask for an increase in our boldness. An increase, Lord, of your Spirit, empowering us to speak truth. 
To stand against the tide of evil, not to be afraid, Father, no matter what happens in our lives, to stand strong and firm in your word. And to cling to your name, Lord Jesus. May we be used by you however you see fit until that final moment when we are taken home. We look forward to that. Like Paul, we struggle, Lord, between wanting to go home and being with you and staying here to do what you've called us to do until the last moment. Until, Father, we leave it in your hands and we entrust our lives to your will. And just ask, Holy Spirit, once again, that you will embolden us to speak the name of Jesus wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.